today on Ag News Daily. Generally called a hemp biomass, so um, material is harvested, either shucked or dried or processed in various ways. A lot of different ways people will process in the field. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here coming to you from the Windy City, downtown Chicago, Illinois, where it is actually quite breezy today. Uh, Delaney Howell is my co-host. She's joining me as well. Delaney, is it breezy where you're at? It is breezy in central Iowa as well, Mike. Well, that's what we get, I suppose. We move into fall. We get these weather systems coming one after another. The changes in high pressure to low pressure, of course, causing that wind as it spreads across the prairie states. And that's literally all the meteorology I know and the care to understand. <laughs> so let's talk news, Delaney Howell. What do you got jumping out at you today? Well, Mike, I saw this article today on Reuters, and it's discussing the U.S.-China trade deal, saying now, according to a U.S. source, it could be delayed until December, which is not great news. The official who spoke was, of course, anonymous and said it was still possible that the Phase 1 agreement could be um, reached in the month of November, but... A deal was more likely than not, so I guess that is positive optimism there. Um, they still have not decided where that meeting will take place, but I'm not sure what the reasoning is either for it to get potentially pushed back to December, other than China is asking the U.S. to get rid of some of the tariffs, especially those that are intended to go into effect December 15th. Yes. Yes, I think that is the big sticking point. And, you know, we talked about earlier this week or late last week, China really doesn't want to be locked in on when to purchase agricultural goods. So I'm guessing those two issues are combining to make it a somewhat thorny discussion as they uh, try to move towards the deal. But before we get too much beyond this trade deal talk, listeners, raise your hands if you're surprised that this deal might be delayed. Well, we can't Delaney, see them I'm not seeing hand. any hands. Yeah, I know. I'm not seeing any hands. Yeah. That that's the joke, Delaney Howell. Oh. None uh-huh. of us I don't so think funny. are very surprised no. that, that this deal has the potential to be delayed. But positive news that I guess they still feel as though one might be forthcoming. I guess that's the case. However, we did get a blow to the pork market today. It came uh, it was a twofold blow. One was the story you just mentioned, the fact that this deal might not come through in November as had been previously promised. The other was that China's Kafco, their massive agricultural conglomerate, entered a deal to buy 100 million pounds, excuse me, 100 million dollars worth of pork, Delaney. Mm, good news there, Mike. From Denmark. Oh, not so good news then. Not so great news. No, they uh, they came out and they said they are going to buy $100 million worth of pork from the European pork producer Danish Crown. They're going to make this purchase in 2020. Uh, according to Danish Crown, this is the largest deal they've ever put together. China made it a point to say they are looking to expand their producers, or excuse me, their suppliers, and they want to have a much more global footprint when it comes to supplying pork, given that they you know, are still dealing with and grappling with this uh, devastation caused by African swine fever. I read that comment as a swipe directly at the United States. Basically, yeah. they're saying, look, hey, we know you got a lot of pork in the U.S., but look, Denmark's over here. They got some pork they want to sell us. Recently, no they tariffs. just bought those... Uh, that $100 million worth of pork from uh, from Brazil, mm-hmm. they are really making a point to try and show that they can source their protein needs 
around the world, they don't just need to come to the U.S. So they're kind of, it seems like, using the carrot and the stick approach as we get close to this phase one trade agreement. Absolutely. And to follow up with that, the National Pork Board put together a study looking at the impact of African swine fever, the trade and tariffs situation with China, and then just their overall need for protein in the report called Pork 2040, China Market Assessment. So really, I think the big takeaways here for me was pork is still a very critical part of the Chinese diet with recent consumption estimates of about 88 pounds per person per year in China. So it's still a very much essential piece of their diet. However, they're beginning to really focus on finding other sources of protein. And according to the report, pork consumption in China peaked in 2014 and has now seen actually a slow decline even as Chinese population continues to grow. And it's expected to hit its largest population level by 2030. But they're focusing on other proteins now, which I think comes as no surprise, such as specialty fish, chicken and beef. And the other, I think, big takeaway from this is really the window here of opportunity for U.S. and in this case, Denmark or other countries to export pork is only going to be until about 2025 by 2025. Analysts are forecasting that their Chinese domestic production will be back at full capacity. And not only that, but we will see the Chinese industry rebuild with better technology, probably more biosecurity, although who really knows at this point. And so they're expecting really that window to last at length in most until 2025. Yes, and I believe this is from the same report. This is from a, uh, a Reuters report. They anticipate Chinese pork imports to top out in 2022 before they begin to decline, as that Chinese herd, uh, Delaney, as you mentioned, comes back online. Which, you know, if we can recall that just a few weeks ago, the Chinese head of veterinary medicine said they were going to have their herd size back to normal by 2020. I think pretty much every person outside of China in the hog industry is saying no shenanigans on that. It, uh, it'll be at least 2022. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the story we've got there. Um, I do have one other piece of news that I wanted to just slip in because it definitely was a bullish factor, at least in the wheat market earlier today. And that was uh, the U.S. dollar. We saw the dollar fall today. Um, it came about on some weakness. A big part of that was the lack of clarity with relation to the uh, U.S.-China trade deal. There was some weakness against the yen. All of these things helped push the dollar down a little bit, which definitely helped support the wheat market, which is an export-heavy market, and the cheaper dollar helps us get a lot more of that wheat sold in the global, um, you know, global Marketplace? Um, market. Thank you, Delaney. Oh I tell gosh. you what, I just had a fantastic lunch with our good friend Emma Weston from AgriDigital. She's been on the podcast a few times, and we went out for Giordano's uh, stuffed deep dish Chicago pizza, and I ate three slices of it. Mm. And for those of you who are listeners either outside the U.S. or or have never had the pleasure of having a deep dish Chicago pizza, it is a pizza pie that is about four inches thick. It has a crust, and it has the sauce on top. And then ordinarily, you know, you'd have crust, sauce, cheese, right, plus toppings. That's how a pizza is typically constructed. That's the structural model of a pizza. 
Chicago deep dish is reversed. It's crust, roughly two and a half inches of cheese in the middle, a little bit of sauce on top, and then toppings. And oh my gosh, I had three slices, and I do not think my brain is uh, is working very well today, Delaney Howell. No, it doesn't sound like it, does it? No, but I tell you what, my stomach is working overtime, and uh, tomorrow morning I'm going to need a lot of coffee to get up and going mm, to really tackle the day, yeah. I can tell you that. Great. We'll just leave it at that. I didn't tell you why I'd need yeah, the coffee. No. I didn't get into that much detail. I think we already know why. The caffeine to stay awake, yep. obviously. Okay. Anyways, moving on away from that lovely topic, uh, yesterday we had Charlie... I really wish oh I had a story right now about manure, but I don't. Okay, can I can I move on, please? We done with this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Everybody loves a little scatological humor to yeah. brighten their day. Okay, well, maybe I'm not one of those people, but moving We're on. Spreading my... it on a little thick today. Okay, yep, moving on from that whole subject. Yesterday we had on our Tech Tuesday conversation a grower who is using smart ags technology that driverless grain cart in the field today there is big news for smart ag and they are acquired now officially have been acquired by raven industries not sure yes where that where that company is located but uh yeah i saw that come across the news wires today yeah, you know that was a that was a fantastic piece of news. I saw that uh, Colin Hurd from Smart Ag was uh, was very pleased with the takeover. It's going to keep a lot of the Smart Ag, I think, the entire Smart Ag team intact and just bring them under the Raven umbrella. And I'm sure a lot of our uh, our familiar our listeners are familiar with uh, Raven Industries. They build GPS, uh, you know, tracking and self steering devices. And um, it's uh, yeah, it so- certainly sounds as though. This was a, a great move for the company. And Raven yes. is, uh, Smart Ag is, of course, headquartered in Ames. Raven is based out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. All right. So not too far, I suppose, away from each other. No, definitely a commutable distance. Yeah. Just a quick five hours. Yeah. yeah. Well, compared to like having somebody out in California or something, it's much closer. Absolutely. Absolutely, Delaney. But I tell you what, I am all out of news. How about you? I have one other piece of news that I think really could have an impact on growers, and that is a Supreme Court case that is going on right now. They will hear arguments in a case that's originally coming to us from Hawaii, but has significant implications for U.S. agriculture all over. So essentially, this court case was from Maui County, Hawaii, and it has to do with wastewater that flows into the Pacific Ocean when injected into groundwater. So the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the county needed a pollution permit under the Clean Water Act, but really the reason why this matters is today, well not today, but this court case in general will set the, the precedent for the Clean Water Act moving forward and could, if we see the appeals court decision is upheld could make producers be required to get permits for applying fertilizers and pesticides to their fields because the residues could get into groundwater. Interesting. You know, so basically this would, it sounds like, categorize growers as point source polluters, which 
a, a pretty clear reading of the law. I know we've rehashed this a lot both on the podcast and in the whole of ag media during the waters of the U.S. debate. The, the writing on the wall should be fairly clear. Agriculture is exempt. We are a non-point source, quote-unquote, polluter, um, and should be exempt from these requirements. So, yeah, we're going to have to keep an eye on this case and see exactly how this appeals court rules. Delaney, do you know which uh, court of appeals this is taking place in? Because I hadn't seen this story. Oh, the Supreme Court. Oh, this is the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, yeah. That's why I'm saying it's going to set precedent for the entire industry. And I think, I'm not 100% positive, but I think we should have a decision sometime today, tomorrow, in the next couple of days here. All right. Well, hopefully they stick by the law as written and they continue to make ensure that agriculture is not regarded as a point source polluter. But, Delaney, we're tasking you with maintaining it. You are now our chief legal correspondent. Perfect. Yeah, I already figured I was. Yeah, put that on your resume. Oh, okay, perfect. I'll do that. Yeah. All right. Well, with all that out of the way, can we throw it to me, our chief market correspondent, mm-hmm. and dig into what has happened in the world of agricultural pricing? Yes, CMO, it's all you. Let's do it, folks. And as we look at the market today, we've got weakness in corn and beans. Wheat, as I mentioned, supported by that cheaper dollar, but only supported fractionally. In the corn market, December contract drops three cents to three seventy-eight three quarters. We're consolidating here ahead of Friday's big WASI report. The March contract was down four cents at three eighty-seven and three quarters. In soybeans, November down six and three quarters, closed at nine fifteen even. The January contract also dropped six and three quarters to finish the day at nine twenty-seven and a half. December Chicago wheat up one and a half cents, finished at five sixteen and three quarters. The March up one and a quarter to close the day at five twenty one and a half. Weakness today in the livestock complex. December live cattle off forty five cents, closed at one nineteen even. The February actually up but only two and a half cents, finished at 124.70. The bigger weakness was in feeder cattle and lean hogs today. November feeders were off a dollar oh five, closed at 146.80. January contract down a dollar thirty-five to finish at 144.42.50. Lean hogs December down two dollars fifty cents on but double that double whammy I should say of delayed China deal and the purchase of Den. Danish pork. The February contract down 97.5 cents to close at 72.77.50. Jumping over to the dairy market, mixed trade. November contract was up a penny, closed at 20.31. December contract down a dime, finished the day at 19.66. With that out of the way, let's take a look at a commodity that isn't priced on the board. That commodity, of course, is hemp, hemp oil, and CBD, and all of the other accoutrements. Delaney, what do you say? Should we kick it off to the interview? Let's do it. Well, as hemp production continues to expand across the country, we're talking today with Chris Barone, who is the managing partner for Specialty Oil Extractors. Chris, when you look at the recent announcement, which was part of the reason we had you on the podcast today, and that's your your partnership there with your company, combining with one of Kentucky's leading hemp producers. Why did it make sense to combine the end retail with those folks producing the hemp product? Well, so basically we spent the last 18 months, I mean, my company spent the last 18 months um, getting a, a massive oil extractor and post-processing equipment in place so that we could you know, you know, produce large amounts of, of hemp oil. And one of the major things we kind of, started to realize was that compliant grown 
traceable hemp was going to be probably the hardest thing to find in bulk. And so obviously making a good partnership where we can keep a lot of material flowing, um, given our ability to extract and process and like CBD oils, hemp oils, uh, it became kind of a no brainer when you look at, you know, Jane Canada's prowess. And after we, you know, went, went and saw their operations and saw their quality control and quality assurance and the teams they had in place and the people they had in place, it was just sort of a no brainer for us, um, you know, to be able to kind of just focus on what we're good at, which is making oil and doing extraction and purifications. So, Chris, I am fascinated, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be fascinated as well, by the technical process of how you take hemp and derive oil from it. Can you kind of walk us through what the process is like from the field to the bottle, so to speak? Sure, yeah. So, biomass, which we we generally call the hemp biomass, and so um, material is harvested either shucked or dried or processed in various ways There's a lot of different ways people will process it from the field but ultimately you know we get either wet bales or dried bales and material will you know be chopped up and it gets put into an extractor and undergoes like a continuous solvent extraction to all the oil is removed from the, the biomass uh, the, the the solvent is then evaporated leaving an oil that oil is essentially the essential oil of uh, the hemp plant and so from there, uh, it goes through a series of purifications through high high vacuum distillation, and that gives you like nice golden colored oil, which is commonly like a full spectrum or broad spectrum type oil. Uh, a lot of demand for those products for the full benefit of all the hemp oils and all the different components. And then the major component, the major thing that has the, the, the biggest buzz on the, on the market in the world, not necessarily a psychoactive buzz, but the actual product buzz is CBD. And CBD is the main component of in the hemp oil. And so as a crystalline solid, we're able to take that even finer and get like a 99, say 0.5 or 99.9% pure CBD isolate. And so that's another product stream that comes from, from hemp. And so when you hear people talking about CBD, that's what they're talking about. It's the purified uh, molecule directly from the plant extract. So... Chris, when you look at the hemp and and more specifically the CBD oil industry, I've heard about, and it sounds like Kentucky had this problem of having so many producers that thought they had an end market for their product, and then either the company that they were going to sell their hemp to didn't want it or went out of business or whatever. Why have we seen such a huge boom, but then a lot of companies that were doing that extraction process taking a step back? Well, there's a few things. I mean, one thing to consider is that not a lot of extractors have the scale, right? A very big scale. And so I believe that there's a lot more biomass out there than extractors can extract. So essentially, if it's an extractor's market, they're going to be most, they're going to look for the best price. They're going to look for the best quality. They're going to look for all of the things and given the amount of people who are growing hemp and sadly a lot of like fairly unsavvy growers, people who thought they were just going to grow hemp and make a million dollars. I think they're realizing that the handling is a bigger issue. The transportation is a bigger issue. Like who's going to buy it. And, and a lot of like big companies and big firms want to know that like the products they buy are going to be traceable. So maybe a guy you know, it doesn't just work if I go out there and like, I bought some guy's hemp and I have no idea how he farmed it. And I didn't do any like 
nothing. I don't know what seat it was. I don't, I can't verify anything. And so like for us personally, it's like when you can go and say, okay, this seed was planted on this day and this field and this lot and this, you know, this, this row to like whatever extent that actually has a tremendous value more so than someone who just threw some seeds out and grew them and had a few thousand pounds to sell. And so there's sort of like a differing maturity and style of, of how these operations go. And, and I think that's probably the biggest thing why we're seeing that, that dynamic. Now, Chris, I want to look internationally. Of course, we are talking hemp. The hot product, as you mentioned, is CBD oil here in the U.S. But if we go north of the border, uh, cannabis has been legalized. When you look at the processes you have in place for producing CBD oil, are they effectively the same as uh, extracting THC-based oils? Yeah. So, so basically, and to give you a little background on like my my history, I started the Clear Concentrate, which is one of the first distillate brands in the THC space as a California company back in 13. And so, like actually, quite before CBD took off, we were heavily involved in the THC space and you know have created num- numerous brands and types of processes. And so they very much have a lot of overlap. There's some distinction because like THC, for instance isn't a crystalline solid, so you can't crystallize it like you can CBD, but <clears throat> THC's acid, right? So THCA, the, the, the plant, the, 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 the natural forming plant, THC is actually a crystalline solid. So there's a lot of overlap in the types of processing, especially um, like on distillate level, because it's pretty much the same machine. You know, these compounds have similar boiling points and somewhat similar chemical properties. So when it comes to a processing perspective, a lot of that overlaps. And I think what you see a lot of the people in hemp now, <clears throat> excuse me, are people who actually migrated from THC space. There's actually, well, from my perspective, there's kind of like two groups. There's like the folks who are like new to both things and are in hemp. And then there's a lot of folks who are getting into hemp that are well-versed in the THC space. Like I know a lot of folks who are extractors. They learn that extraction technique and, and process from THC and then because there now is such a bigger market with you know international and you know now the ability to go across state lines and the farm bill so now it's like guys like me going okay I don't have to stick around say California and get beat down on you know pricing I'm going to get in them and so or do both right and so I think there's that's what that's what I've seen that's been like my personal experience like all the all my friends who are in in, in in the hemp game they come down and they check out the plant and you know we commiserate all about the same stuff that we always did just on a much smaller scale so you know to answer your question there's a lot of overlap for sure huh that's interesting so chris you brought up there the farm bill so i want to ask about this week we saw the usca put out an interim rule for hemp and the transportation of hemp what does that change for you guys well in reading what I read through it, and it's a little dense, and um, it's weird because if you search the word processor or, or process, you know, processor, um, process, all the amalgamations of it, there's very little it talks about in there about it. So I feel like the USDA is being a bit coy when it comes to processing because we actually have this little snafu because. The whole purpose right now, like 90 plus percent of the hemp grown right now is based off of CBD as a product that's part of the hemp. And so there's virtually no 
all there is is talk about what's not compliant and THC levels and testing labs and it puts the onus on testing labs and they have to be DEA registered and basically makes it more expensive for farmers and more and harder for farmers and in my opinion puts a strange impetus on farmers and 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 what I think is based on the fact that you've got farmers who are not chemists who are not necessarily well versed in growing this plant and a lot of the genetics if grown long enough will easily surpass a 0.3% THC you could have a plant that has 20% CBD and 0.4% uh, 0.4% THC and the government tells you that you need to dispose of it and it's crazy because because the distinction is so odd and arbitrary and the, the stupid thing is, is that as soon as it becomes, as soon as it goes to a processor, that material is guaranteed to exceed the 0.3. Because even, you know, generally like a concentrate, maybe 10 times more potent than its original counterpart. So if you are just on the legal limit of 0.3, now you have a product that's 3%. So now you're in a weird position because, you know, South Carolina, they... They want you to have a plan for disposing of like the THC and doing all that. And, you know, that's not too hard, but it's just weird because they won't give insurance to a farmer whose stuff grows hot and they won't like theoretically have to throw it out and, and dispose of it. And, and it's a little bit, it's kind of like madness because this whole industry is then totally dependent on this one stupid value that's ultimately going to get destroyed anyway whether it's 0.3 or three or five, I mean, it just seems weird to me. And so that's kind of the sentiment that I like feel from a lot of other people. And it's a little weird dance between like FDA and USDA because USDA is like, Hey, this is like an agricultural thing. And then FDA says, you know, they have a whole other, you know, opinions on the end products that we're making. But it seems like to me, like the USDA seems to ignore the fact that all this stuff is being made for CBD. Interesting. Now, Chris, when, when you look out ahead, when you look out specifically for your company and you're in the extraction business, obviously Kentucky is a hot spot. They're good at growing tobacco. They're going to be very, very good at growing hemp. What other areas of the country do you see as opportunities looking to the future? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that because like hemp in general is like a pretty robust plant and there are a number of different varieties. And, I, and my guess is that would be grown kind of all over the place, but in I'd say some areas will be you know highly more highly proliferated. I think like Arizona has a good place, has good potential because um, at least and on my limited knowledge of of farming and stuff, like there's there's good sun, but additionally there's a lot of like you know aquifers and and and, and things like that. And so pretty much anywhere that's got like water, open space, cheap land not you know not too rainy you know cannabis doesn't love rain you know you can get moldy and stuff like that but um yeah I, I mean look you got people growing in oregon people growing in colorado you got people growing all over the place i think anywhere you can you can grow it i think what's going to change probably as, as a couple of years go by may be what types of hemp people grow you know conventionally the hemp that i grew up hearing about oh hemp fiber and things like that is still kind of like modest right now and I, I don't I don't know the numbers, but it's a pretty low amount of farmers are growing for hemp seed and hemp uh, and hemp fiber. So I think maybe as CBD, the CBD buzz and hype dies down a bit, 
and more people start to domestically work out sort of the other crops, um, it'll be those new varietals will have other places that they can grow. So, you know, our intention is to, you know, we have a nice big uh, oil mill. And at some point when people start growing um, like the hemp for seed, you know, we want to do processing here for that. We want to do the toasted hemp seeds. We want to do the hemp hearts. We want to do hemp oil, things like that. And uh, there's just not a whole lot of buzz yet because the big money, everyone thinks about the big money and they start doing all this math on how they can make a bazillion dollars on one crop of, of CBD oil. And it's, you know, kind of not exactly reality. I think we'll be approaching real farming here in no time. And a lot of that stuff is actually quite interesting as well. I mean, CBD is great. I love it to death. But like the new cool stuff with, you know, fibers and, you know, cellulose and plastics and biofuels. I mean, I think that's really the exciting thing. Yeah, how can you, how much, how much paper can you make from an acre of hemp? You know, I think when someone shows that, it's going to start to change everyone's take on hemp. It's not just CBD bearing. Huh. Well, this has been really fascinating, Chris. We certainly appreciate you coming on as a guest today. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's been my pleasure and, you know, happy to, happy to come on and speak my, my thoughts. And I appreciate the time. Well, interesting conversation and I think it's great for those folks. I know Kentucky is definitely a leading hemp state. It's nice to know for some of those growers that grew hemp this year that they do have an end market for their product. Absolutely. And to bring traceability to it, you know, it's one of those things where in a market like this, growers are seeking legitimacy, providers are seeking legitimacy, the technological tools coming together to allow that legitimacy to be there are what's going to make it become a a sustainable market um, over the long term. So definitely, uh, definitely a piece of good news, I would say. I would say that you are right, Mike, but if folks would like... I usually am, well, Delaney Howell. I usually just, am. You're just on a roll today, aren't you? I'm always on a roll because I'm fat. <laughs> That's good. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, welcome. Uh, you know what, Delaney? If listeners like that line and other lines like it, they can check out past podcasts by visiting our website at agnewsdaily.com. We mention that every day, folks, but it is open 24-7. Get over there. Check us out. Check out the other podcasts on the Global Ag Network. Or, of course, Delaney, they can interact with us on the social media. How should they do so? Well, Mike, we are active on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on at Ag News Daily and at Global Ag Network. And tomorrow I'm going to be doing a social media takeover at Global Ag Network. Not really sure what that's going to entail yet, but our great intern is lining that up for us to see a little behind-the-scenes action. So do tune in for that tomorrow. Mike, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.